thousands and millions of refugee women who are navigating through life-threatening conditions. Women experience migration in a different way from men. We are failing women and girls on this route. It's political intersectionality, women being marginalized. Data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that by mid-2021, 2.5 million people in the EU were refugees. Almost half of the latter are women. But is the journey to safety safe for women? Refugees are people who have fled war, violence or conflict and crossed an international border to find safety in another country. In fact, women and girls are exposed to unique forms of violence related to their gender, ethnicity, age, sexuality and socioeconomic status. Today in Focus, has the EU laid the ground for women so that they can fully exercise the right to protection? Have female refugees found safety at the European Union's borders? My name is Gail Rago, and this is the Böll Europe podcast, the podcast of the Heinrich Böll Stiftung European Union office in Brussels. To uncover this complex topic, our guests today are two experienced researchers in the field of migration from a gender perspective, Madita Stantke Erdman and Anila Noor. Madita Stantke Erdman recently worked as a research associate on gender-based violence against women migrants and refugees for the University of Vienna. Our second guest is a refugee activist and researcher, Anila Noor. Anila holds a master's degree in human rights, gender and conflict studies. She recently became a member of the European Commission Expert Group as an advisor and policy influencer for inclusion. She is also the managing director of New Women Connectors, a refugee women-led movement. Medita, Anila, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Anila, we mentioned that refugee women are a very specific group of people reaching Europe as they are usually forced to leave the country. What are the main issues refugee women face when they are trying to reach the EU? And are those challenges in the context of their flight to Europe or are they specific to them being refugee women? Or to phrase it more simply, are refugee women particularly vulnerable along their journey? And if so, why? Thank you, Gail, for inviting me and for this very important question. It's very easy to understand why refugee women is more vulnerable and they are facing either they are in the home countries or in their host country or even in the journey when they are coming to escape their displacement in secure societies. As soon as we hear word refugee and refugee woman, we have images of women crying and need for help. And that's what's happening because systems are making them vulnerable. Being a woman itself, Still, in 2022, women been getting victim of traffic smuggling and they are easy target. So that's why wherever they are, they need help because the system is not providing them safety. So that's why they become vulnerable. They need more systematic support, institutional support, and they need to be understandable. And everyone coming from different countries, their needs are different because these women are different. And we need to have more intersectional lens when we are understanding their needs and their ask for the help and we, how we can give them empowerment so they can feel safe and to feel at home. 
I'm very glad that you actually mentioned the term and concept of intersectionality. I feel like it's a very trendy term to throw around, but I think a lot of people don't really know what it means or use it kind of as a political word for their own means. So maybe we can just kind of pause there. Madita, I wondered if you actually wanted to jump in and talk a little bit about intersectionality before we talk a little bit more about your research. So I will give my take on what intersectionality is from a researcher's perspective, being mindful of my positionality. The concept of intersectionality is a feminist concept that is rooted in feminist political activism and especially Black women's feminist activism, which tried, and not only in the 20th century when it became really well known with scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw, but also before and during times of abolitionism, women always try to emphasize that their position in society is marked by different characteristics of discrimination because of capitalism, because of colonialism, the patriarchy, and also other structural factors which permeate all of society. So I think it's really important also what you said before, that when we use the term intersectionality in policy context so much, it kind of, there's a risk of running the risk of watering the whole concept down and its political core to it. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience. Uh, Madita, now moving on to kind of your background and research into this. When we're discussing refugee women reaching the EU, that usually implies touching upon the migration policies of the EU. So in 2020, the European Commission published the new Pact on Migration and Asylum. Can you briefly help us explain or help us understand rather what that is all about? So the pact uh, was published in 2020, actually, and it's a huge pile of documents. It's a package of documents which kind of outlines the way that the European Union envisions migration and especially also border politics to unfold over the next couple of years. And interestingly, or actually quite yeah, paradoxically, if you will, the document was published right a couple of days right after the fires in Moria on Lesbos. So you probably all remember the pictures of that. What the pact tries to do is to grapple with all the problems that the European Union has had over the past couple of years in finding a common migration policy, a common border security, a common border policy. Is it is being sold as a document of solidarity, of European solidarity, when really there are a lot of layers to it, which clearly signal to us that it's a document that kind of cements the politics of externalization that the EU has been following for a very, very long time, at least since the early 2000s. I think also linked to that, since we were touching upon intersectionality, I kind of wondered, in light of your research, how do you think the new pact on migration and asylum impacts refugee women? And would you say that it has this lens of intersectionality or is that lacking? Yeah, well, so I would identify that there are three main findings, if you will, if you look at the pact and if you want to find out whether there is an intersectional lens. The simple answer is that I would say there isn't, and that's for a couple of different reasons. One of them is that it suggests to present a one-size-fits-all solution to a complex problem, which Anila alluded to already, To First of all, it says that women, girls, and groups that are not hetero, cis, white, male individuals, so including LGBTIQ, are actually victimized and framed as vulnerable. And that's not to say that these people may 
not qualify or may not actually face specific vulnerabilities or may not be affected in very specific ways. I think Anila said that before, but it's just that the pact tells us that these people are vulnerable full stop. They don't tell us why they are vulnerable. The second point, and then derive policy implications for that. The second point is that it doesn't acknowledge that the EU migration and border regime in itself are violent and that they reproduce structural inequalities that actually put people in peril, that actually the EU border regime is deadly, it's violent, and it has racist implications on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's one of the huge problems that any migration policy at the moment, including the pact, does not acknowledge that because obviously if it did, then it would dismantle the whole concept of it. And I think one last point is important to mention that it promises to present the EU and its migration policy as a humanitarian deed, as a humanitarian well, well-beer, if you will. But really, it just shows that it kind of tries to reify those exclusionary mechanisms that have been out there already. And this is obviously due to internal political problems within EU member states and among EU member states. But still, yeah, in short, I wouldn't say that we find a lot of intersectional analysis, intersectional awareness here. One thing that I was reflecting on as you were speaking is you were speaking a lot about the vulnerability of these women. And indeed, of course, they are vulnerable. But I kind of wondered if I could play devil's advocate. Is there sometimes a lens of placing these women as victims constantly without kind of looking at them as their own agents of change or being able to speak for themselves and on their behalf? What is your experience with that? Actually, sadly, it's very true what you said. Women, especially in a forced migration debate, has been put as a victim. And it's not about because of their certain kind of policies who are making them victim, but also the trend. Patriarchy is there in our policies. And there's a mindset is there. Like they said, women are dependent. And that's why we need to come up with a gender-based feminist approach in the policy. That's what new women connectors are doing. We are advocating for systematic change in the policy debate. We are advocating why it is important to understand the refugee women, especially to take them as a resilient leaders instead of saying them they are victims. So we need to blame the system because system system is making them vulnerable and victim. Before going deeper into the rough and unequal journey of women to become refugees, let's recall the key concepts of intersectionality so the audience can understand the picture better. This term was defined by the professor Kimberly Crenshaw, referring at first on Angela Davis's work about the black feminism movement in the 70s in the USA. This approach results in the analysis of a multiplicity of elements like gender, race or social class to explain the place that a person occupies in the social hierarchy. Therefore, the intersectional approach in the context of policymaking aims to highlight and then to understand this vulnerability and the complexity of these power relationships. In the end, this should enable the adoption of appropriate and inclusive policies. So far, we've learned that refugee women encounter rather specific types of problems if we adopt an intersectional prism of analysis. We also saw that the EU policies in the field of migration, and more specifically the new pact on migration and asylum, 
do not properly take intersectionality into account. So to both you, Madita and Anila, very concretely, what do we need to do to change the picture? Yeah, I will say we need to understand, especially the question, because when we are talking about we need to change and also link how we need to change. Unfortunately, in European discussion, in my experience from last eight years, I saw and I witnessed and observed gender and feminist lens and intersectionality lens is being taken as a for granted is so much hidden in the whole discussion and become as a second thought. When I approached to have some discussion about policy change and they hear word new woman connectors, they think I'm only talking about gender-based violence or some woman's right only. But they are unable to understand we are advocating to how we need to bring a systematic change in the policies in the policy debate and in the infrastructure because it's easy to say, oh, but our policies does not allow, our system does not allow to bring it. That's the reason we need to change the system. That's why we are advocating for to change this system, to bring more inclusiveness, to bring openness, to bring to understanding of what is gender-based approaches and how we can bring this intersectional feminist approaches in the policy especially because policies are actually the main root cause where we are lacking and facing, women are facing more violence at their home. Women are facing more limitation when they are applying for the jobs. And the racism there, discrimination is there and is generated by the policies. And unfortunately, we are ignoring the main root cause and we are just giving attention to the very small component. And that's what we are trying to highlight and to give them understanding. But unfortunately, in Europe, still is a long way to go. Absolutely. Madita, how would you like to respond to that? And I also really am glad that both of you have already touched on talking about structural issues and how we keep trying to fix perhaps symptoms or the easy fix without actually wanting to acknowledge the structure within which we work. So how would you like to respond to this question and and maybe kind of build a little bit into what the structure looks like and what would need to be done in order to address the system? Yeah, sure. Maybe two points. The first point is that I think one of the issues is that in Europe, migration policy and border policy, they're both understood as very regional issues. And I think if we look at where the the topic is dealt with, it's not understood as a foreign policy issue when really the EU's foreign policy and its member states' foreign policy impact the way that migration policy or migration actually unfolds in times of globalization and capitalism. I think we need to understand migration not only as a national or a European issue that is understood as a threat moving towards the European Union, but actually the way that the EU's migration policy moves into actually huge parts of the world. So if you look at the African continent, we see that in countries like Niger or Chad or other sub-Saharan countries, the EU migration policy regime already unfolds there. So people are being told, do not come to the EU. You don't have any chance to come and so on and so on. The border regime reaches down there. And this also shows the ways in which the European Union has been investing into border militarization, heavy border militarization over the last year. 
years in cooperation, obviously with Frontex. We need to understand that migration is not a security issue. It's not a militarized issue. It's a human need to migrate if we can't survive. So I think within this profit generating system of capitalism, it is really important to change that. This brings me very nicely to something that has been playing on a lot of people's minds when we look at what is happening now in the news and how, you know, Ukrainian women or Ukrainian refugees in general who are fleeing Russia's war of aggression are being received and treated. So I kind of wondered about your thoughts on that. And also from an EU perspective, do you think that there is a difference in the reaction? And if so, why? Thank you for this question. And I think Recent this Ukraine crisis actually, I will say and start as a positive note, the openness, the welcome response from uh, European states is very impressive. And it shows two elements. One is anyone can become refugee. So it's not about we only assume developing countries or people of colors only will be a refugees or nothing could be. So that's why we need to fix this policy right now for our future. And second, the positive response, and I will say not only positive, but urgent response and very open response shows if member states, cities and other institutions they want, they can change it. But unfortunately, it's not very inclusive, the response, and we shouldn't replace one vulnerabilities or one crisis with other crisis. So there are still so many refugees, asylum seekers, stateless and vulnerable communities like women and children and even elderly, the old people who are stuck in the camp in Netherlands, in Germany, in France, in Greece, in Norway and Spain. There are so many stories which I'm hearing daily and I don't know how to respond to them because on the other end, we are giving welcoming response to one community and we're ignoring them. So again, we are creating vulnerabilities, discrimination. We are putting again, which happened in 2015 and 16 of Syrian crisis. We forgot about refugees from Afghanistan, from Iran, from Congo, and we give the importance and all the response to them. And again, this is happening. And uh, this is a long debate, but the thing is, we are super happy, like our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and their community, they're coming because they need it. But I, again, as I said, we shouldn't replace one crisis with the other crisis. Absolutely. Madita, anything you'd like to add? I think looking at what I outlined before, that the new pact on migration in 2020 was described as this compromise or this one-size-fits-all solution, which had a lot of underlying racialized and gendered implications with it already. It's kind of ironic that the war against Ukraine has made it especially clear what the EU proposes to be, and it proposes to be a humanitarian actor of solidarity and a humanitarian actor with moral integrity. But given the way that also people coming from Ukraine who did not have a Ukrainian passport, POC, for example, were not treated equally is very revealing, I think, of how and I would like to quote Nahid Shahalimi, um, an Afghan-Canadian activist fighting for Afghan women's voices to be amplified. She recently labeled this as selective humanitarianism, and I think this fits it very, very well, what is happening right now. The war in Ukraine actually made this house of cards collapse in a way 
showing that the European Union can provide support and access to people seeking refuge. And I think this is politically a very delicate moment right now. And I think it's also a very delicate moment for people coming here that there's such a level of selectivity. And I think this is a huge issue. And I'm not very sure what the outlook for this is. And I think one of the solutions to that is is really to And if this is such a standard feminist take, listen to people, talk to people, include civil society. Do not hesitate to feel uncomfortable. These are inconvenient conversations that are needed to be had. And it's ugly. And it's especially ugly for those people from a position of privilege to face this. And this is why I would say we're facing something in the future. We're facing huge challenges if politically and structurally things don't change and if there's no political will to do so. And I think this is the major issue here. I think both of you have very much kind of skirted around it, but I kind of want to really talk about the R word, which is race. And I think that's the reaction and the welcome that Ukrainian refugees received and the pushback that Black, Brown people living in Ukraine were receiving is indeed that stark slap, right, to a lot of black and brown activists or people living in Europe to be like, okay, so it's clear, as long as it's a white person who is vulnerable, you will be accepted with open arms. And that changes depending on race. So I kind of wanted to ask both of you, what has your experience been? Do you think in terms of EU policy and in terms of policymakers that race is even on the agenda? Or are they, as you were saying, Madita, so uncomfortable by talking about it that they would much rather ignore the elephant in the room? And this is something you could also talk about from the academic or researcher perspective in terms of how this is talked about, not just at an intellectual level, but more than that. I would love to hear both of your views. Anilo, why don't you go first? Okay, let's admit they don't know the racism happening. This is wrong, what they're doing. That's why we are giving them, okay, let's come together and we are sharing our knowledge our experience and informing, you know, uh, creating some kind of sensitization, awareness rising, like this is wrong. And that's what we need to do. We need to bring more solidarity and to say no in the solidarity and saying, okay, do not put humanitarian agenda or human rights as a second thought beyond thinking about your own situation. Like as Madrita also referred, everyone is talking about as soon as this comes security, security of what? Security of borders security of resources. Instead of saving lives of humans, they are securing their borders. And also, I grew up and born in such kind of country as a fourth girl child. And my experience of being born as a girl, of being born as a woman, is giving the feeling of burden. And I felt same in the narration, in the discussion of forced migration debate in policies on an EU level. When they talk about migrant or refugees, they talk about as they are burdened because they are unable to count their contribution. They are unable to see how much potential they have. They are unable to see what could bring they are bringing to their European countries. That's the thing we need to highlight. European state need to start recognizing, to open their eyes to the future they hold. They are not coming for the cave timing. They are not coming with empty-handed. They have more than they can imagine. So this is not even racism, they are blindness. We are trying to challenge and give them the wake-up call. We are not talking about ourselves. We are talking about our home, which is Europe now. 
Thanks, Anella. That was really powerful. I also really love how you talked about security and security for whom. Who are you making safe and who are you hurting or pushing away in the process? Madita, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, sure. I completely agree with what you say, Anela. And I think one part of this is looking into the future, but the other part is looking into the past. And I think European states, especially the more powerful ones, politically powerful ones, including Germany, for example, are doing a terrible job at looking at their own colonial history and their racist history and the ways that this still unfolds in today's foreign policy and today's migration and security policy. I think there's a lot for us to learn. And I think this is especially important to understand from this feminist and post-colonial perspective, bringing both these intersecting perspectives together And I think there's some very powerful research on this, on race and racism in international relations, where people talk about this concept of racial amnesia. So the, the scholar, for example, Robbie Shilliam and Alexander Anievas talk about this a lot, racial amnesia, and also just the pure idea of forgetting and willingly forgetting that there is a racist past and that this still impacts the ways that politics are made, international politics are made today. And this goes for migration and humanitarianism and like the liberal project that underlies all of this. So we can also have a completely different discussion about how liberalism is imbued with racism in itself as well. But I think this would kind of go into a very different direction here. But I think history is very important here as well. I'm really glad to hear how, in a way, everything is connected and you cannot separate our past from our present, from our future. Thank you so much. The last question I have for both of you ladies is if you have any concluding ideas, suggestions or advocacy demands, now is your time, that you would like to add or transmit to the EU, what would they be? We need member states, donors and organizations. They need to invest on women-led, especially refugee women-led initiative. Unfortunately, there have been so much limitation when it comes to resources. And we as a refugee women-led organization, though we are very strong, we are working voluntarily when it comes to the sustainability, create more long-term impact, we need investors. We need to be work as a partner instead of beneficiaries. We need to change and challenge that we are partner and we can help them. We don't need middlemen who comes and who give us a piece of the pie as a small funding. We need direct funding from AMIFL, from Erasmus+, Plus, from member states to work with us as a partner. So then we can change and we can bring more linkage, especially with SDGs goals. We need to think about how we talk about to bring more gender sensitivity, feminist approach in the migration debate, what is happening today. I would actually only add very tangible asks To the EU and European policymakers, there are mechanisms, there are tools out there also on a policy level that make it allow it to make migration and border policy more inclusive, less violent. And this is the Women, Peace and Security Agenda of the United Nations Security Council, which I think can and gives us a lot of answers to how to include women and migrants also in this whole issue. And I think the agenda needs to be extended to the issue of migration because it's kind of being neglected at the moment because it's understood as a national policy or domestic policy thing. 
I love that we've done a full circle. We started by talking about how women are vulnerable, but should not only be seen as victims. And we end by what Anila has just said. If you want to fix the problem, if you want a more just world, talk to us, invest in us, fund us, trust us, look at us as not just victims, but advocates of our own lives and change. I love that. Thank you both, Madita and Anila, so much for guiding us through this complex topic and also for giving us examples to understand why intersectionality should guide the EU policy for refugee women, especially now in a context of war. We're so, so grateful to have had you. Thank you and bye. Thank you. Thank you. The conversation of today was inspired by the study Intersectionality and Refugee Women, the shortcomings of the EU Pact on Migration and Asylum from an Intersectional Perspective. Published by Heinrich Böll Stiftung and done by Maldita Stanke Erdmann. You can read the paper at eu.boell.org. For those who want to know more about refugee flows to Europe, remember that the number of asylum seekers, countries of origin and other information can be found on the UNHCR and Eurostat websites. The European Parliament recently published a study requested by the Committee on Women's Rights and Gender Equality about the traumas endured by refugee women in the EU host countries, which helped us as well today. And that's it for today. You have been listening to the Böll Europe podcast, the podcast of Heinrich Böll Stiftung, European Union office in Brussels. You can subscribe and discover previous episodes on our website. To stay up to date, remember to follow our social media channels. And this was Gail Rago. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode, take care and goodbye.